welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Sinners are welcome to this house of worship. You are first-class citizens. The reason we can say that is because Jesus came to this world to save sinners. And Jesus considers sinners to be first-class people. And he loves them very much. He wants to deliver them from their addictions. Debated whether to tell this little story But do sinners feel welcomed when they come to this house? You know, we have a role in that, don't we? You know, something I'm not any bit different than you are. Have the same challenges, the same temptations, the same struggles, the same uh, distresses in my life as you do. The pastor isn't any different than the person who's sitting before me right now. I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior in Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that Jesus welcomes us here as sinners today. One of our dear ladies told an experience of first setting her foot into an Adventist church and realizing a great need. She'd gone, fallen just about as far as she could, and she sensed that she had no resources in herself to lift herself up and so she was searching and she just had a compulsion in her heart that perhaps God had something for her and so just as she was sinner as she was she came to a little country church it was a little Seventh-day Adventist church and the dear saints as they saw this lady walk into church they didn't quite know what to make of her or what to do with her uh, certainly she was, a, in their perspective, so much different than they were. And um, uh, <laughs> she can tell this a lot better than I can tell it in a much more humorous way. But um, they realized that this dear person had some real challenges in her life. And so what they did was, the best that they could, they wrote on a little sticker, guest, and put it on her. <laughs> Almost as try to say, well, she's not one of us. (laughs) She's just a little bit different. (laughs) And maybe she felt like she wasn't quite so welcome at that place. But dear folks, uh, I want us as folks who come here from Sabbath to Sabbath, part of our regular church family, to realize that all of us are sinners and that we are in need of Jesus. And when we have Dear wonderful guests, come. And you know, every Sabbath there is someone new that comes to this house of worship because we live in a great big metropolitan area. And there are people who sense their 
great need and they've fallen as far as they can go and they're searching. And when they come to this house, do they feel as though they're welcome and that there are other fellow seekers of God just as they are who are in need of help? Well, are you tired of carrying a load of guilt around? Do you feel like your life is just a dead end? Are you, you've indulged in all kinds of amusements and now they're getting tiring to you? Do you feel like you've been a human discard? Maybe you need a drink so that you can cope. There's good news for you. There is a Savior who is very near to you. And you've come to the right place to hear about this Savior. Already, your Savior, if you don't stop him, he is going to irresistibly bring you and draw you to, your, to himself. He himself died as the payment for your sins. He died your death. Has already given you the gift of salvation. He doesn't merely offer it to you. Not sure? Are you living and breathing right now? Are you? Well, you wouldn't be if Jesus hadn't died for your sin upon the cross because the wages of sin is death. So you're living and breathing right now because it's a gift to you because Jesus died for your sin on the cross. Jesus, the all-powerful divine Son of God, I think is someone for you to take notice of. Now you can say no to him and you can beat him off And he has to honor your choice. But if you don't stop him, he will take the initiative in your life to lead you all the way, to bring you to happiness here and now. And he, if you don't stop him, will take you all all the way to heaven where he lives and back to this earth when it's made new to live with him. You say, well, that's just too good to be true. Be careful before you turn away. Listen to what he has to say to you this morning. He has paid a tremendous price to make this true for you, the price of his blood. I have some very shocking but very good news for you. There are some folks who have been diligently searching the Bible, making some discoveries there, and it's almost like a dense fog has finally lifted and the bright sun is shining again. And this is not some musty manuscript found in a desert cave or dug out of the sands of Egypt, but about discoveries in the Bible itself that were always there, but now they're coming out in their beautiful luster and shine. It's very good news, better than most people have ever thought it could be. There's been enormous progress, hasn't there, that has been made in the scientific discoveries on all levels. We've even put a person on the moon and we can jet around the world at breakneck speeds. Why shouldn't there be equally marvelous progress among God's people in understanding the good news of salvation? It brings such joy to human lives. The reason? God is alive. You know, God is really a with-it person. He is more with-it than the internet. He is more with-it than tomorrow's newscast on your television set. God is a with-it person. He's ahead of the, of the game. He's like a personal father to everyone who is willing to let him be the father who can be trusted. He is infinite, and because he's infinite, 
he's able to treat everyone as if that one were the only one alive upon this planet Earth. And he has nothing but goodwill for undeserving people who desire a better life, but they just don't know how to find it. The good news is what the Savior has done, what he is doing, and what he will finish doing for us and in us, not what he might do, maybe, perhaps, and if he became the world's Savior, not merely wanting to be, provided we do something impossible. The Bible declares that he is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. So actually, we humans don't know how to get out of the mess that sin has made of our lives. So the Savior has stepped in, and he has taken the initiative to make things right for us. For a long time, most people have thought that after his resurrection, you know, he resurrected, was resurrected from the dead, and then he left the earth, and they think, well, now, what has Jesus been doing all this time since he left the earth? Well, maybe he's on a nice, relaxing vacation in a cabin by a lake. Maybe he's just done his part a long time ago as far as the plan of salvation was concerned, and now he's just waiting for us to get our act together, and then he'll take his break from vacation and come to get us. He's waiting for us to stop sinning and start doing loads of good things, and then he's going to break off his vacation to get us. But you know, Bible, diligent Bible students are discovering that Jesus has never taken a vacation of any kind since he's left this earth. In fact, Jesus is fully engaged in a great controversy for your soul that is being waged by Satan. In fact, Jesus is, if you want to call it, he is in his office doing the work as a general, engaged, fully engaged in this battle of the great controversy. And we speak of this office that he is in as the Bible reveals it as a heavenly sanctuary. And he's there working without one break at all. He doesn't take a, a noon break or an evening break. He's on duty 24-7. And his full-time employment is saving sinners like me and you. He does that for you and for me. He is rebuilding human wrecks He's reaching down for the worst down and out backsliders. He is lifting throwaways out of the ditch. He's listening to distraught cries and prayers at 3 o'clock in the morning. He's whispering hope to depressed people who are alcoholics and addicted to drugs. He is convincing teenagers that he understands them and that he cares, and he's urging would-be suicides not to do it. And he is pricking consciences that are lazy. And he is also working with selfish saints, melting. Also, he is melting, hardening hearts of prostitutes. He is healing broken hearts. He's encouraging those who are in prison and He's giving abused children some hope. Would you say Jesus is busy? You're absolutely right. Jesus is very busy. But he's not too busy to be closer to you 
and more true to you than a best friend could ever be. The Bible describes his day and night work. It describes him as being a high priest. I suppose the best modern equivalent to a high priest would be a divine psychiatrist or a physician of the soul. Although he was sinless, he took our fallen, sinful nature, he met temptation just like we have to meet it, he had to say no to self just like we have to, and the Bible opens a window into his secret soul as Elizabeth read it in Hebrews chapter 4. Pardon me, chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, 14. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So you see, his specialty is healing people, healing them of all kinds of hurts, even from their childhood, problems that they weren't responsible for. But Jesus never excuses us for going on in sin. He heals, he forgives, he cleanses, He sets us free like an inmate that's walking out of jail. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmity, Paul says in Hebrews 4.14, so that he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. The Bible urges us, as a result, to come boldly, therefore, to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I guess we just need to learn how to come to the throne of grace, don't we? But someone says, yeah, there's got to be a catch. It's not, however, that you have to do something first. Rather, I'd like for you to just see something first. Maybe you've got to realize that you are a sinner before you can come boldly to the throne of grace, before coming can make any sense. For he is a Savior who doesn't save anybody but sinners. If you think you're a decent and a good enough person on your own, you'll feel out of place in coming to the throne of grace. To him, it's sinners who are first-class people He says in Matthew 9, 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He must have said that tongue-in-cheek because he knew very well that the only kind of people there are on this planet are sinners, even if they think they're not. But they have known it because God's holy law has penetrated all of the barriers they have erected around their souls, and it has convinced them of their sin. They are all called by him. Jesus was, perhaps in this word, pressing a thorn into the self-complacent thinking of the so-called good people, making fun of those pathetic saints who think that they are righteous, 
and they don't know what a mess they are in, in the sight of heaven and on the stage of life before others. In honest truth, Paul said in Romans chapter 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They've all gone out of the way. There are times when the fog lifts and we see this truth more clearly than at other times because the Holy Spirit presses home the convictions that that we are all the same by nature, sinners who can't save ourselves. Not one of us by nature is any better than any of the rest because we're made out of all the same dough. All the world, Paul says, has become guilty before God in Romans 3.19. It's written all over all of us. Our very name is Adam, which is the Bible name for all mankind, and Adam was a sinner, and we're all descendants from him. When he sinned in the beginning, he was the entire human race in himself, so that the whole human race sinned in him. All the sin in the world was therefore included in Adam's sin when he sinned. There's not a human on earth who has not come from Adam and inherited a sinful nature that inclines them to do wrong. All have sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. But now, open your Bible there where it says that in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And the good news comes after that, where it says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here's the good news, the next half of that same sentence. The all who have sinned, it says, are being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank God for that. The second half of that sentence more than cancels out the first half of that sentence. Well, you say, how? How does it do that? Well, that word justified... It means to straighten it out, to put it right, to vindicate it. This morning, I looked over my shirts, and I saw there was some wrinkle in the shirt. It needed to be justified. The wrinkles needed to be taken out. So, yes, I had to put a little heat, apply it with an iron, you know, and pretty soon all of those wrinkles just flattened out. That's what justified means, to iron out the wrinkles, to straighten it out. And so the text is saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, are being justified freely, straightened out by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, remember, it's only sinners who needs straightening out, right? Only sinners. Please look carefully because all this was done before we ourselves could possibly do anything good. He justified us, put us straight, redeemed us, saved us as the human race, and he did this before any of us made a contribution. It's wrong to say or think that faith saves us. Faith is not our Savior. 
Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, By grace are ye saved. By grace are ye saved. And that agrees just with what we've read here in Romans 3, 24. We are saved before we had faith. But our faith is what grabs hold of that blessed fact and makes it real in our own personal experience. So that's why Paul goes on to say, by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. But faith does not save. By grace are ye saved. But faith grasps the gift from him. Now that's good news, isn't it? And it's good news, very clear in Romans 3, 23, 24, that all are justified. That means that the entire human race, this truth, listen to me, if you are in addictions, by the way, sin is an addiction, isn't it? We're all addicts to sin, aren't we? And whatever kind of addiction you find yourself in, probably you're there because of depression. You're finding, trying to find some way to escape Anxiety and despair and depression and low self-esteem and low self-respect. This is good news for you, dear friend, that when you thought that your bank account was in, a, in the red, bad, even before you arrived on this earth, God puts you in the black with his death upon the cross and justified you legally when he died for your sin upon the cross. That's good news, isn't it? God always comes to the sinner with good news, with a pardon. Believe it, and henceforth you cannot help but hold up your head high anytime, anywhere. But how can the change come about for your life? These all that are justified freely, no admission ticket required, anything free has to be for anybody and everybody, no exceptions, right? No one can say, well, that isn't for me, unless, of course, you're from Mars and you haven't sinned, and that is a preposterous assumption. There's nobody here on this earth that's from Mars. All of us are from earth, and we are all sinners, and the gift is for sinners. So stop wasting your precious uh, spiritual energy worrying about whether God has accepted you. He put this in your bank account before you were born. He put you in a plus position. Come into his presence like the prince and like the princess that you are in his sight because you have already been adopted into his family in Jesus Christ. Someone says, how can that be? I'm not a real Christian, never have been. The answer is that the whole entire human race was in Christ as the second Adam, just as it was the whole human race was in the first Adam when he sinned and, and messed it up for us. Therefore, you were included in Christ. When Christ was baptized, the Father said to him, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He was talking about you. He was talking about me. He was talking about all of us. A writer who understood this says that the word embraces humanity. When God spoke to Jesus 
that you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased that Jesus was our representative. The all are justified by his grace. And note that the word faith is not there. Your faith or your lack of faith had nothing to do with Christ giving his life for you, justifying you by his sacrifice. And remember that grace is not meant for good people, but for those who don't deserve it. Wait a minute. All this is given free to bad people? Yes. The Bible says all. Jesus said in Matthew 5.45, If your Father in heaven makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust, then it must include bad people. It must. That has to be the meaning of grace. Or it isn't grace. Grace is God's mercy to sinners. Imagine the surprise that this is going to be. There are many millions of people out there who haven't realized what the Son of God has done. The very shock of learning this will capture their attention, for most have never been told that Christ accomplished such a feat as this for them personally. Even atheists are going to be shocked when they hear this news, for no one could have invented this idea. Only God could have done it. And by now, we're taking a very deep breath. This is shocking to all of us as well. What evidence do we have in the Bible of this good news? This is too good to be true. When the Father sent His Son into the world, the Father gave His Son a specific job description, and that job was to save the world. For He says, Jesus says, I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world and to give my life a ransom for many. John 12, verse 27. So he's not going to force you to be saved against your will. You can say no. You can forfeit your birthright, even as Esau sold his birthright for a mess of lentil stew. And many people will sell this gift, this birthright that has been given to them, But the birthright has been yours because you are a member of the human family. And you're not an exception. Are you a sinner? You're the reason why he came to do this. Can you believe that you have been redeemed? That's what the Bible is saying. Is the gift given to us already? That's what the words grace and given freely mean. Now, wait a minute, someone says. Isn't there something I have to do? Well, yes, of course. Something big. Something very important. You must believe this good news that you have heard. Let it move your soul. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's true, and no one has a right to add any words to what Jesus said here. Jesus did not say, such as you must do this, you must do that, or that nothing happens unless you take the initiative. No, 
it says he took the initiative. God so loved the world. That's you, dear sinner. That's me. He's taken the initiative. He has loved. He has given. But this does not mean that faith is some kind of just a mental uh, mathematical problem where you believe, okay, I believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. To believe means to appreciate what it cost God to love us so much like that, that he gave his son to die for us. That's what it means to believe. You can do that, can't you? You can thank him for it. You can express appreciation, heartfelt. This is the much bigger truth that many are beginning to discover now in the Bible. Such faith takes a hold of the whole heart, nothing left over for the selfish world. The heart appreciation is big because you realize that Jesus, what Jesus did, was really big. The biggest idea you could get your mind wrapped around. The death that he died for us was not merely enduring some physical pain for a few hours, which was terrible enough. He died what the Bible calls the second death, the death without personal hope, the pouring out of his soul unto death that Isaiah speaks about. In other words, out of love for us, he gave himself and he literally went to hell for us, truly giving himself forever. And the most wonderful hero in the world who died for somebody else couldn't go that far. On his cross, he felt the full pain of abandonment from God and he sobbed out in tears, Why have you forsaken me? There we see the width and the height and the depth and the length of his love. It's called agape. A love that is as different from what we call love as day is from night. And when our shriveled up, poor little hearts begin to appreciate that agape love, then we truly begin to live. Truly live. We're like dead people who've been resurrected. Uh, in fact, our hearts have never been so moved. And this discovery is magnificent that you can believe because of God's love. It's a resurrection to new life. It's what we call being born again. No, faith is not trusting the Lord like you trust your bank, like you trust your insurance. Because you can do that and you can still remain selfish just like you were before. Because trust is a very self-centered concern. Just let me point out this, that trust involves mutual obligations. And you're not going to get any kind of insurance policy unless, first of all, you put up the money for it, right? And then what can you do? You can trust your insurance that if you suffer an accident, they'll make you whole again, right? That's trust. Dear friends, that is not faith in God. God does not expect mutual obligations from you. What he desires you to see is his great promise in Christ of pardon, that gift. And that love changes you so that it creates your faith. 
The John 3.16 idea of faith, I think, solves this problem that lifts our naturally self-centered hearts out of a cave, dark cave, into the sunlight. Faith is a heart-melting appreciation of what it costs the Son of God to save us. In other words, faith couldn't even exist unless, first of all, there was a revelation of that love at the cross, which is agape. All of us is just another way, all this is just another way of saying that salvation is by grace. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. If faith works through love, then there's no end to the good works that it will eventually motivate us to do. Here's the victory over every kind of evil the devil tempts us to do. No addict is beyond the Savior's reach. Stop carrying that load of guilt. No guilt-ridden soul is beyond the reach of God's love. Faith itself is a change of your heart. It reconciles an alienated heart, that selfish heart. It reconciles it to God. And since no one can be reconciled to God and not at the same time be reconciled to God's holy law, such faith that's motivated by God's love immediately makes the believer become obedient to all of the commandments of God, all of the Ten Commandments. The love of Christ supplies an infinitely powerful motivation. From then on, it's not a matter of what do I have to do in order to be saved, but how can I say thank you enough for saving my soul as you did, Jesus? That's what it becomes. Jesus came so close to us that he became one of us. He felt how we feel inside. It's it's not a sin to be tempted. Everyone is in one way or another. Even a thousand temptations do not equal one sin. The sin comes only in yielding to that temptation. We do not have a high priest, Paul says, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The double negative equals a positive here. We do have a Savior who was tempted in all things like we are. So no matter what your problem is, He knows, He understands, He sympathizes with you, and you can trust in His goodness. But it doesn't mean that He sympathizes with the sin or that He excuses you from going on committing it. He knows that the sin will kill you, which is why he hates it. If you're standing on the window of a skyscraper, Jesus won't say sweetly, I know that you are discouraged, so it's okay with me if you jump. No, Jesus will yell at you. Get back from there. Don't you dare do this. I know how you feel, for I too have been tempted to despair, but I overcame it, and I freely give you grace to overcome it too. Why would he talk so strongly to a person on the edge? Because he loves you. You will appreciate him more when you understand why he can't stand your continued sinning, because he's got a better life for you. The same grace which has justified you is given to you to overcome that sin. 
every addiction. It is not merely offered to you provisionally if you do everything just right. It is given to you. Let us come, therefore, boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Suppose you're an alcoholic. The mercy gives you hope for forgiveness. The grace assures you that you don't deserve it and that you can't save yourself. The basic principle, which is the basic principle of that famous uh, 12-step program, the help is deliverance from the addiction itself, not merely transferring it to other drugs or nicotine. And the throne tells you that the true so-called higher power is Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. Higher power is Jesus. Alcoholism is more than a disease. It is sin against him and against his holy law, which says thou shalt not kill. The deliverance is from the root of it all. (coughs) Self-indulgence is the root of alcoholism. And the good news is this, that the deliverance gives you the grace to say no to temptation every time it comes up. You overcome as Jesus overcame. You're never alone, for you are always with him. His Holy Spirit gets to the very root of your problem. Healing is from the inside out. Suppose you're addicted to drugs. While Christ was unspeakably Agonizing on the cross, kind people were offering him a drug that would ease his pain. And he was terribly tempted to bite down on that saturated sponge and get some relief, but he would not drink. He chose to keep his mind clear so that he could finish the work of becoming your savior from addiction. He was tempted as you are, yet without sin. You can never duplicate what he did, but by his grace you can keep your mind clear so you can appreciate what he did for you. Suppose you're into gambling. This is an insidious habit that eats the soul out like the acid. But what could you do? What you could not do, uh, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 3, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, if he condemned sin, it means he outlawed it. He trampled it underfoot. He defeated it. In Christ, you have freedom from this addiction. Use the hand of faith to grab this victory of Christ. Hang on to it. Don't make the vain promise, oh, I'm never going to gamble again. God doesn't ask you to promise him anything, but choose not to. And then ask your Savior to save you from it, and then thank him for it. That's the ABCs of conquering this problem of gambling. Suppose you're a slave to appetite. Same struggle, same victory. When Christ began his ministry, his first battle was with appetite, and he won a total victory over it. Again, your victory has already been given to you by grace, but realize it through faith. Immerse yourself in the story of Christ's battle and his victory. 
Let your mind grasp what happened. It's useless to pray for the Lord to take away the temptation of eating because food's everywhere. And he couldn't answer your prayer unless he shut down all of the supermarkets and all of the restaurants in the world. But you can pray that his Holy Spirit may help you to grasp how grace is stronger than sin. And thus your faith will grow in strength. You don't need to fall even once. You simply let the Lord hold your hand, hold you by the hand. All he must have is your permission. Suppose you're addicted to sex outside of the boundaries that God has delimited it in marriage. Or kinky sex. Or pornography. An addict. The root of slavery to lust is that same self-love that started this worldwide ruin of sin in the beginning. But there is hope for you. You need to understand that there is healing in the cross of Christ. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Sin is the murder of the Son of God all over again. Those who refuse repentance crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. The healing medicine will burn like healing acid down to the toes, but it will cleanse you of all self-love. It's a heavenly work, but this is the work of our high priest, Jesus does it as our divine physician. He heals us of our sex addictions. He cauterizes and he heals the wound. The blessing is coming, for he has promised to pour on us this spirit of grace and supplication. He has promised to give us the gift of repentance so that we will turn from our selfishness and our self-love to his agape love. So don't try to take a detour away from God's holy law and skip around the cross. Fall on your knees and let the tears come freely. Let your soul be melted and beg for him to do his work because like a surgeon who will not operate without your full permission, he is too polite for his work of cleansing your heart and healing you unless you give him your full consent for the necessary surgery to take place. But Jesus has never lost a patient. Worst of all, suppose you're a hard-hearted, selfish, worldly, professed Christian, and you're lukewarm, and you don't know how to get over it because it's like being in a drunken stupor. And you want to wake up, but you're paralyzed. You know in your own heart that you are a disgrace to the Savior. And like the self-sufficient scribes and Pharisees who crucified him, you make people think that you are pious and religious, but you know it's a lie. And yes, your case is the most difficult for him to handle. Saving perverts, saving criminals, you know, that's a lot easier than healing a lukewarm church that is diluted thinking that it is rich and increased with goods and has need of nothing. 
Jesus said that harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. But there's hope. He commands us to be zealous, therefore, and repent. It's useless to think we repent when we try to confess the little sins that we add up. Real repentance includes the sins that we didn't even realize we had in our hearts because they're so deep down. But really, we are no better than anybody else. And that stabs us awake, but it's true because we have no righteousness of our own. Therefore, the sin of somebody else would be our sin, but for the grace of Christ, the entire human race would be in ruin if Christ had not saved us, and you and I are a part of it, we murdered the Son of God on the cross. And if we had been there, we would have done and acted the same way because the world is in us and in our flesh. When we confess that, if you are ready to confess that you murdered the Son of God, then you are on the way to beginning to appreciate his death for you. The greater we recognize sin to be, the greater the joy of realizing how valuable the forgiveness is from it. From it. The Savior is the lover of your soul. He has his hand on you just now. Let him lead you all of the way. Welcome him into your life and into your heart. Jesus is on duty 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In fact, that's a lot better. He's a lot better than having a 1-800 number to call because uh, you can always reach him on the other end of the line. And Jesus never takes a holiday. He's never on vacation. So you can talk to him on Christmas and New Year's Day too and on Labor Day. But remember that deliverance from the sin does not mean that you will never be tempted again. You will still have sinful nature or sinful flesh until the Lord comes. You have just discovered the secret of overcoming. It is not I, but Christ. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.